Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. It's been 3,191 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 272 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Before we get started, in case you missed yesterday's episode, I do have a head cold, so I apologize for the quality of my voice, and thank you for your understanding. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Russia is conducting stealth mobilization and may be preparing for the second wave of partial mobilization in January 2023. Second, we maintain that Russian forces will continue terror attacks on Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure and conduct these missions in large-scale waves due to improving Ukrainian air defenses. These attacks will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Third, we maintain the slowdown in combat operations on multiple axes is a mirage, with Rasputitsa creating an outlier situation over the weekend. Fourth, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Fifth, we maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Sixth, we maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing renewed unrest inside and outside the Kremlin. If there continue to be military failures, there is a remote chance Russia could face a regime change. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Eighth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Ninth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we assess that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished but remains a possibility in the next 50 to 80 days. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kherson and Zaporizhia. The situation in Kherson and Zaporizhia remains unchanged, with both belligerents trading artillery and rocket strikes, and Russian forces continuing to build defensive positions way behind the line of conflict. Russian forces continue to shell towns on the west bank of the Dnipro River. Russian artillery units significantly increased attacks on the city of Kherson, targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. Five civilians were injured and one killed in the shelling. 
Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine and Minister of Reintegration of Temporarily Occupied Territories Irina Vereshuk advised residents to evacuate for the winter months due to a lack of energy infrastructure and the time it will take to make repairs. The Ukrainian government offered transportation, housing, food and medical support for those who wanted to evacuate to Krividi, Mykolaiv and Odessa. Ukrainian forces shelled Russian positions on the east bank of the Dnipro, including Kachovka, Oleshki and Holopristan. In Kozachi Lecheri, Russian occupiers broke into the medical clinic and surrounding buildings and looted all the equipment and valuables. Residents of Kherson accused Russian forces of bringing their war dead to the landfill and burning their bodies during the occupation. There had been repeated reports of occupation forces burning bodies while they controlled Kherson. Reporters from The Guardian said they could not verify the veracity of the claims made by residents, and the pictures they shared did not provide conclusive evidence that corpses were disposed of in the garbage dump. Pictures did show Russian helmets and uniforms intermixed in the garbage. Ukrainian officials provided no comment and did not say if an investigation was ongoing or would start. The Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, claimed that Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Novodarivka, which is on the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border, and were unsuccessful. The line of conflict in this area was pretty fluid during the summer and quieted down in August. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported that the artillery strikes on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on November 20th and 21st damaged a condensate tank, causing a leak of non-radioactive material. Engineers with Enerhoatam repaired the tank and other areas of the power plant. The IAEA reported that the, quote, six reactor units is stable, and the integrity of the spent fuel, the fresh fuel, and the low, medium, and high-level radioactive waste in their respective storage facilities was confirmed, end quote. International observers with the IAEA reported the industrial area of Enerhodar was shelled, but the barrage did not represent a threat to the plant. Neither belligerent claimed to have shelled the area nor made accusations. Reactors 5 and 6 remain in a hot shutdown state, with Rosatom employees continuing to interfere with plant operations and not allowing Reactor 5 to be brought up to a low power state. Russian mill bloggers with Grey Zone suggested that the Kremlin was setting conditions in the information space for withdrawal from ZNPP and the surrounding area. Alexei Lichachev, CEO of Rosatom, told Russian state media, quote, I think a security zone around ZNPP will be possible only if it is approved by Washington, end quote. Grey Zone and other mill bloggers pounced on the statement and pointed out that blaming the United States was a tactic used by the Kremlin to prepare the Russian public to accept battlefield failures. There are, however, no indications that Russian and Chechen troops are planning to vacate ZNPP. Both Russia and Ukraine are reporting there are troop buildups around Juliapola. Russian mill bloggers have been claiming for months there was a looming Ukrainian counteroffensive toward Melitopol, and we have previously assessed that a broken clock is eventually right. The reported Russian troop buildup is defensive in nature, with half-height dragon's teeth and prefabricated concrete bunkers being brought into the area. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitopol, reported that the hospitals in the city had become so overrun with wounded Russian soldiers that civilians were being released early, and the children's hospital was converted into a military medical center. There was little activity along the front line, 
with light artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Juliapola to Orekhiv. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Ukrainian sources reported that Russian forces attacked Vremivka on the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border and made small gains. We made a slight adjustment to the line of conflict based on the reliable report. The Russian MOD reported fighting in Pavlivka and Volodymyrivka. Geolocated video recorded by drone earlier in the month showed Russian tanks north of Volodymyrivka. Based on this new intelligence, we've updated the map and coded the town as under Russian control. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that the daily Russian attack on the eastern edge of Novomikhailivka was right on schedule, with no change in the situation. Despite the foul weather, heavy fighting was reported in Marinka, with some Russian mill bloggers claiming the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, had advanced to the center of the city. Pro-Russian account Rybar reported that infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, had advanced to Druzhby Avenue and captured school number two. We did not update our map because our assessment was apparently pessimistic and we already had Russian control mapped to Druzhby Avenue. Mercenaries with Wargonzo provided a more sober assessment, only stating that heavy fighting was occurring in the city. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called the conditions west of Donetsk, quote, hell, and extended praise to the Ukrainian forces fighting in the region. Russian forces also attempted to flank Marinka from the north with an unsuccessful attack on Krasnohorivka. Tanks with the DNR militia continued to fire on Ukrainian positions in Pervomaisky from the edge of Pisky on the E-50 ring road. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel released a video of artillery strikes on Ukrainian positions in Vodyana. Military commanders with the DNR appear to be replaying the greatest hits of August. After three days of failed attacks on Novokalinova in an attempt to flank Krasnohorivka, then a pause, the 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Kamyanka. This was the identical playbook from August 21st to 28th, and yesterday's attack was just as successful as the August 28th attempt, which is that it was not successful, and the line of conflict did not change. Ukraine targeted the electrical substation in occupied Smolyanka, knocking out power to over 105,000 households. At the time of recording, power had been restored to most of the region. Yazunovata was shelled by Ukrainian forces, targeting an abandoned boarding school. DNR officials did not report any casualties. Overnight, an oil depot was shelled by Ukrainian forces in Makievka, the one in Donetsk. Three rail cars and two storage tanks of fuel were destroyed. DNR Droopy Dog provided a detailed battle damage assessment including pictures of the disabled railroad tracks. The DNR militia PR telegram channel changed the language in their daily reports. They claimed that, quote, joint actions of the military personnel of the Donetsk People's Republic and the armed forces of the Russian Federation, end quote, destroyed one self-propelled howitzer, one S-21 multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, three main battle tanks, and four, quote, armored and automotive vehicles. It is not clear to us why sanity returned to the report today, but here's to hoping that the Chechens were told to go away. Ukrainian forces were extremely active, 
and carried out 338 fire missions on the occupied territories. The heavier use of artillery was likely due to poor weather and ground conditions, making larger offensive operations impractical. The chief engineer for the public utility Water of Donbass, Sergei Mokri, reported that a serious water crisis was looming with DPR reservoirs at the lowest level reported since the start of the year. Ukraine's fall season has been relatively dry, and typically water levels would be increasing. Mokri reported that the region has six to seven months of water left if the situation does not improve. Russian troop and equipment movements continued in Mariupol, indicating that despite Russia's declaration that the Kerch Bridge has been reopened to road traffic, the overland route through the Donbass remains the major route. The equipment and troops were reportedly moving east from Kherson and Zaporizhia. Russian occupiers in Mariupol have slated a 1964 mosaic that honored Soviet cosmonauts to be destroyed. Created by celebrated artist Viktor Arnatov, his last remaining work in Europe is in Mariupol. Arnatov moved to China after the Russian army's defeat in World War I, then moved to Mexico in 1929. He studied with Diego Rivera, and the pair created the frescoes in the National Palace in Mexico City. He moved to the United States, where he painted murals and created frescoes, until returning to the Soviet Union. The fresco was damaged during the Russian siege of Mariupol, but it is repairable. Despite the Soviet-era connections, Arnatov's membership in the Communist Party starting in 1938, the veneration of cosmonauts, and the thumb in the eye to the West with his return to the Soviet Union, the occupiers plan to destroy the work, because apparently Ukraine can't have nice things. In northeast Donetsk, well, it's Groundhog Day again, so let's just get through this as quickly as possible. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, led positional fighting east of Spirne, Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, Vesele and Yakovlivka, with no change in the situation. Fighting around Vesele was likely a Russian reconnaissance group of platoon size or smaller, given that there were no reports from either belligerent of successful advances west of Bilohorivka or Yakovlivka. The heaviest fighting in Ukraine continues to be east of Bakhmut, with PMC Wagner trying to regain the lost territory along the E-40 highway. There was also fighting east of Solidar and Opitne. Russian forces are reportedly reinforcing this front, with battle conditions described as a, quote, meat grinder, with replacement troops killed and wounded as quickly as they are sent to the front lines. Wargonzo reported that PMC Wagner attempted another advance on Kurdyumivka without success. Pablo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the DNR heavily shelled the railroad station in Mayorsk, indicating that the Russian forces have once again been pushed out of the area. Moving on to Luhansk, the Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces attempted to liberate Kuzemivka and couldn't move the line of conflict, suffered losses, and returned to Novoselivsky. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Stelmachivka. The area has become a hot spot, with Russian troops defending the ridgeline to the east, which would enable Ukrainian forces to establish better fire control over the P-7 highway and Svatova. The attack was unsuccessful. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian troops attempted to advance on Kholikova and Chervonopopivka. The advance was unsuccessful, but Kholikova is three kilometers east of the known line of conflict. 
You may remember last week when there were reports from the GSAFU that Ukrainian troops had advanced two kilometers in Luhansk but didn't report where for operational security reasons. It's pretty unusual for the Russian MOD to admit they were forced to cede territory, so we believe the report has significant weight. We did not move the line of conflict, but we did expand the gray area further east. Ukrainian positions in Ploshanka were shelled for the fourth day in a row. In Sirotine, a suburb of Severodonetsk, a Russian military column was destroyed, likely by rockets fired by HIMARS given the distance. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar reported rockets fired by HIMARS struck Russian positions in Lysychansk, Kremina, and Nizhnya Duvanka. Rodian Miroshnik, foreign policy advisor for the self-declared Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, reported Kremina was struck by HIMARS a second time. Additionally, LNR officials accused Ukraine of striking civilian areas using HIMARS in Alchevsk. Pictures showed Russian progress on the Wagner line around Svatova, with three rows of half-height dragon's teeth interconnected with cables. Similar work that started in Hirskozolote has expanded to Popasna. Yuri Digtyarov, Minister of Natural Resources and Environmental Security of the LNR, was arrested for fraud. Digtyarov has held the position since 2014, and the Kremlin appears to be accelerating its purge of Ukrainian collaborators across the occupied territories. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In the Cherniev, Kharkiv, and Sumy region, we have a borderline error and omission. In yesterday's episode, we mentioned that we'd changed the status of Liman Pirshi from contested to liberated, based on reports that Khyanikivka to the north and Sinkivka to the south were liberated, and Ukrainian forces had occupied the western edge of Vilshana. New intelligence indicates that Russian forces still partially occupy Liman-Pirshi, and we've updated our map. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Esmen, Seredina Buda, Khotin, and Znopnovhorodsk were shelled by Russian mortars, artillery, and grad rockets from across the international border. Over 140 rounds from across the international border. In Seredina Buda, the House of Culture, homes, and a gas pipeline were damaged. Several homes were also damaged in Khotin. There was a minor border skirmish near Khluchiv with a small exchange of small arms fire. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region. The head of communications for Operational Command South, Natalia Khumanyuk, reported that Ukraine was engaged in military operations on the Kinburn Spit, where fighting was ongoing. Khumanyuk reported that control of the spit is contested and that no other information would be released due to operational security. Due to geography, the western tip of the Mykolaiv Oblast is out of the range of conventional Russian artillery. Although we are skeptical of the reports, and Khomenyuk has engaged in psychological operations in the past, there was no shelling in any region of Mykolaiv, including Ochakiv and Kutsurub on the Dniprovska Gulf. Russian occupiers are building an alternative route from Crimea to occupied Kherson near Armyansk, 
because the M17 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, and the route to Chaplinka are both within the range of HIMARS. Rumors were swirling on Russian social media that the town of Armyansk itself would be evacuated, which the Russian-appointed puppet leader of occupied Crimea, Sergei Oksyanov, denied. The Russian state enterprise Shipyard 13, which supports the Black Sea Fleet, has been forced into bankruptcy after a November 17th court filing. There wasn't any additional information on why the state-run company is broke or the next steps. At least one Russian Kilo-class submarine remained on patrol in the Black Sea, capable of launching four caliber cruise missiles. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Markhanets was hit with 60 Grad rockets fired by MLRS. There wasn't significant damage or any casualties reported. Moving on to the Russian front, Bilgorod suffered a, quote, massive power outage caused by a, quote, technical disruption in the network, according to local officials. Power was largely restored by nightfall. Air defense was active in the city almost 12 hours before the outage, so it is unlikely the two are related. The notchline construction in Bilgorod along the Ukrainian border continued, with trenches, berms, and quarter-height dragon's teeth deployed. Hold up, quarter-height? Weren't people already making fun of the half-height dragon's teeth? Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The national power company Ukrenerho reported there would be a 10% energy shortfall today, resulting in a return to unscheduled blackouts. Kyiv, Vinitsia, Sumy, Ternopil, Cherkasy, and Odessa were the hardest hit, with officials appealing to businesses and people to take additional conservation steps. In a televised speech, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told his nation, quote, We can be left without money, without gas, without hot water, without light but not without freedom, and it remains unchanged. End quote. Advisor to the office of the President of Ukraine, Alexei Arastovich, said that Russia was, quote, seriously considering creating a second front by launching an attack from Belarus. Arastovich hypothesized that PMC Wagner would take a widening role in leading combat operations in eastern Ukraine, and elite Russian units would be moved to the north for a future attack. Some assessment here? We believe that there remains a chance that Russian forces will launch an offensive in the direction of Rivne, although it is diminishing. However, we don't see PMC Wagner capable of mustering a professional fighting force large enough to take over more of a role in eastern Ukraine. The Czech Republic is giving Ukraine two prefabricated bridge structures to help repair critical infrastructure. The structures are not military bridging equipment and will require seven tractor trailers with police and firetruck escort to be moved into Ukraine. The GSAFU announced that Colonel Serhi Chomik, commander of the 456th Helicopter Squadron, was killed in action on November 11th, when the MIH transport helicopter he was flying with Major Viktor Penkovi was shot down over the Donetsk Oblast. Ukraine has developed a new kamikaze drone, the anti-personnel UAV is called Ebosh, a quadcopter armed with a VOG-17 grenade. The camera is mounted to provide the operator with a first-person view, and field testing has been completed. The range is limited to 2 kilometers, but the small size makes it an ideal light infantry weapon along what has become a frozen front. 
and the drone can travel up to 150 kilometers per hour. Luxembourg announced it would provide Ukraine with an undisclosed number of high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, more affectionately known as HMMWVs, aka Humvees. Israeli officials have drawn a line in the sand, no pun intended, with Iran over the possibility that Tehran will supply Russia with short-range and medium-range ballistic missiles. Multiple sources reported that Israeli ambassador Alexander Bensui warned his counterpart in Moscow that if Iran supplies Russia with SRBMs, Israel will provide SRBM technology to Ukraine. The head of Israel's Security Council, Mr. Ayel Hulata, reportedly issued a similar warning. The information was shared on the Israeli TV channel Khan 11. Lithuanian Defense Minister Arvidas Anousaukas announced his nation would provide Ukraine with 155 mm ammunition and winter uniforms. Lithuania has provided Ukraine with 640 million euros in assistance since February 24th, including 232 million euros in military assistance. Speaking of military assistance, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov denied reports that Russia was planning a second wave of partial mobilization on January 1st. However, Peskov would not rule out that additional mobilization might be in the future, telling reporters, quote, "I cannot speak for the Ministry of Defense. There are no discussions on this matter in the Kremlin." End quote. Kirill Guncharov, the deputy head of the Moscow branch of the Yabloka Party, wrote on Telegram that he had no question that the second wave of mobilization would start by January 15th, and accurately pointed out that mobilization papers were still being sent to Russian men. We have extensively covered that the flood of 318,000 conscripts has practically collapsed Russian training facilities and military logistics. And exposed the deep-seated corruption in the Ministry of Defense that has left Moscow completely unprepared for an extended war. In Russian-occupied Crimea, mobilization is continuing because the region did not meet its requirements set by the Kremlin. The commissariat started calling men to military service to meet the shortfall. In Samara Federal District, where there is a shortage of military instructors, leaders found an innovative way to prepare Mobiks for war in Ukraine. Airsoft players instruct the recruits how to shoot and employ quote military tactics. According to its leader Anton Tikin, training has been going on since October, and more than 600 servicemen have already passed through airsoft training, and the same number should be trained in the next two to three weeks. In a video, the Mobics fire blanks from the service weapons in fully automatic mode. If you've ever fired a rifle, trust us. Watch the video. We link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. You will almost feel bad for them, almost. Russian mill blogger Andrei Medvedev, not to be confused with the Ukrainian tennis player, blasted the Kremlin and military officers for providing poor training to conscripts without consequences. He said, quote, "There must be discipline in the army, but still, I want to ask: Will this rule about discipline and especially responsibility apply to officers too?" In particular, those who are responsible for the training of the mobilized, there are obvious problems with it. And when a soldier is being trained for a war of the 1970s, this is a problem. Will responsibility be extended to those who did not provide the soldiers properly? I'm not only talking about walkie-talkies and thermal imagers. I'm talking about sleeping bags and foam rolls too. 
Will liability be extended to those who sent the mobilized to the war zone with minimal training? I have not met a single mobilized person who complained about being mobilized, although it is clear that no one is delighted. All complaints are about preparation, for training, for unnecessary stupid stepping, and for the lack of coordination. The state de facto shares responsibility for what is happening with them, and it must remember that responsibility applies to everyone. End quote. While Russian mobics go through the Airsoft Academy, PMC Wagner's Yevgeny Prigozhin was asked about NATO and United States training of Ukrainian forces and if it was having an impact. Prigozhin said, quote, Of course, the Americans can probably teach Ukrainians technical innovations. But as far as combat skills are concerned, the Ukrainian army itself can successfully train any army in Europe or the world. End quote. In the LNR, Mobics are being issued uniforms worn by dead or severely wounded soldiers. Conscripts are finding the personal effects of other soldiers in the pockets of their uniforms. While corrupt quartermasters hand out used uniforms, better equipment can be found for a price on the black market in occupied Luhansk. Mobics on the front lines in Ukraine haven't displayed a lot of fight, but they have repeatedly demonstrated they are ready to rock when they are in the rear with the gear, as they say. On November 19th, in the city of Yurga, a group of Mobics got into a brawl with patrons of the Grabli Café. The incident, which involved chairs being thrown, was caught on camera. Ten Mobics were involved, and one had to be hospitalized. I guess that's one way to get out of frontline duty. Natalia Bogdanova, a 71-year-old grandmother, is being deployed to Ukraine as a Russian Mobic. No, hold on, I'll explain. On Monday, she left Bryansk in an IL-76 military transport for her deployment in Luhansk as a, quote, nurse, after taking courses. The pensioner, Bogdanova, is a former surveyor with no prior military or medical experience and wanted to enlist as a cook. She was initially denied when she tried to enlist in September, but was later accepted. Chechen Kadyrovite Said Zakayev, who has been fighting in Ukraine since 2014, was killed in action in Ukraine on October 31st. Zakayev gained international attention during the opening months of Russia's invasion of eastern Ukraine, brutalizing a bloodied woman tied to a pole in Donetsk. Russian President Vladimir Putin will meet with the mothers of soldiers in Ukraine, quote, in the coming days. The Russian state news agency Vedamosti quoted three sources about the impending photo opportunity, staged meeting humanitarian display from a benevolent leader of a free nation that definitely cares about his people. Putin appears to have relaxed somewhat about being exposed to COVID, but until recently, civilians meeting him for state media photo opportunities were required to be isolated for two weeks before maskless interactions. As fun as it would be, it is highly unlikely that angry Russian babushkas will be among the mothers meeting with the president. Soldiers with the Freedom of Russia Legion, they fight for Ukraine, found the remnants of a Luna M rocket and documented the find. The 9K-52 Luna M is an SRBM that was first put into service in 1962 by the Soviet Union and had an accuracy of plus or minus 1,800 meters. Originally designed to carry a tactical nuclear warhead, the poor accuracy was a good-enough battlefield solution with a minimum range of 15 kilometers and a maximum range of 65. The ancient SRBM system was replaced by the OTR-21 Tachkyu, which the Iskander-M replaced. 
The Russian Federation retired the 9K-52 Luna-M system in 2010, but kept 10 launchers in reserve. State news agency TASS reported that a new combat battalion formed in Zaporizhia is cocked, locked, and ready to rock. Sorry, that's U.S. American for ready for combat. The formation of the battalion started in September when Russia announced mobilization and is made up of forced conscripts from Melitopol and the surrounding area. Oh, wait, there's more. TASS reported that the unit is, quote, lightly armed and will be issued, quote, retrofitted pickup trucks also known as technicals. The second best military in Ukraine has been reduced to forced conscripts pressed into service to fight their own people with no armored vehicle support. The governor of the Adyal Federal District, Andrei Klitschikov, advised Mobics who returned from deployment but never entered Ukraine to pay back their signing bonus of 50,000 rubles, or they will face court action. It is unclear if court action includes being recruited by PMC Wagner for more money, better equipment, and better training. The irony is so ironic. Everything is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's very brief report, But if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian forces shelled a humanitarian aid center in Orekhiv, Zaporizhia, killing one and wounding two. Local officials reported casualties could have been worse, but new procedures for standing in queues and providing shelters in the area helped minimize casualties. In geopolitical news, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly recognized the Russian Federation as a terrorist state and mandated the creation of a special international tribunal to punish Russian war criminals. The measure passed unanimously, including yes votes from Hungary and Turkey. The Iranian Students News Agency, or ISNA, announced that Iran was beginning the enrichment of uranium up to 60% at the Fordow nuclear facility. The third processing using centrifuges is against the International Atomic Energy Agency resolutions, and the announcement has likely ended any hope of the Iranian nuclear deal restarting. Representatives from the Russian Federation were not invited to the 2023 Munich Security Conference, with organizers saying they didn't want to give the nation, quote, a platform for their propaganda, end quote. The conference will be held from February 17th to 19th, and will include military leaders and defense experts worldwide. In economic news, a measure banning information and displays of LGBTQIA materials with an up to 10 million ruble fine was tabled by the Russian state Duma. The Duma was convinced that the overreaching law would, in the way that it was written, ban almost all video games in Russia and cause economic damage. We're not exactly sure how poorly written the law was, and how LGBTQIA, quote, propaganda was defined. But on the surface, this sounds like it was a hot mess. According to the United States publication Bloomberg, Russia has lost 90% of its oil market in Europe. And this is before additional sanctions kick in on December 5th, creating price caps on Russian energy products. Producers in India are scrambling to buy Russian oil before the December 5th deadline, 
making it much harder for the Kremlin to use currency and price manipulation to increase oil profits. On top of that, China's oil consumption outlook is in decline, expanding the global supply. Before February 24th, over 60% of the tax revenues that fueled the Kremlin came from the oil and gas industry. We had previously reported that Russia was increasing taxes on several products, including alcoholic beverages and tobacco. The Kremlin announced a new tax will be implemented on soft drinks, 7 rubles per liter starting in July 2023. The ruble was steady with an exchange rate of 61 for 1 U.S. dollar. Oil prices were unchanged, with WTI crude trading at $80 a barrel and Brent at 87 United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market climbed to $2.49 per gallon for November contracts. That's 65 cents a liter. Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 climbed again to 119 euros per megawatt hour, and January 2023 contracts rose as well to 126 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures were down slightly, trading at $8.18 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.